John had worked for his company faithfully for years, putting in extra hours on nights and weekends just to make sure his team finished their assigned projects and finished them successfully. His supervisors, his co-workers, everybody respected him. He was honest. He was reliable. Everybody wanted to work beside John. A couple years after John was hired, Carl joined the company. Every company seems to have a Carl. Maybe the kindest way to put it would be to say Carl's work ethic was the exact opposite of John's. John's work ethic was come early, leave late, and Carl's was come late, leave early, if he even comes to work at all. Carl was constantly looking for ways to cut corners and delighted in finding ways to get out of work rather than just do the work that he was hired to do. Now, nothing he did was illegal. Nothing was necessarily unethical, but it irritated John just to see Carl moving up in the company. Carl received promotions that John, because he was his senior, felt really should have been given to him. And then the dreaded moment came. John and Carl were assigned to work on the same project together. The crucial report and presentation for the company's board, the bigwigs, were going to see this one. And on the Friday before the meeting, as usual, John was working late at night in his office, reviewing their work. Carl left at lunch that day because he had some exciting plans with his friends for the weekend, and he left John to do all the work. Corner-cutting Carl started grievously vexing faithful John. And John gently reminded Carl, and hey, bud, the big presentation is coming up next week. We have to present to the board, the people who have the ability to fire us. But Carl just laughed him off as he waltzed out the door. John was chagrined. John returned to his office to do some final editing on their report, on their presentation. And suddenly, as he was reviewing the numbers one more time, there it was right in front of him. It was incontrovertible evidence, proof of Carl's sloppy mistake that had cost his company significantly. All John had to do was include those figures in the report, and there's really no reason to do it, but he could do it. And not only would the board see Carl's mistake, but John might get a significant and long-delayed promotion too. Maybe they would apologize to John for giving the promotion they should have given to him, to Carl. These are defining moments. They appear without warning in our lives. One simple decision often made without a moment's conscious thought, and the very essence of our character is forever altered, in fact, even forever revealed. In our story today, we're going to learn about one such defining moment in Joseph's life. It revealed what was really valuable both to God and to Joseph, and it will reveal what's really valuable to us in our defining moments. We're going to hear all about that right after this. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Good day to you, God's Word for Life listeners. Welcome back to the God's Word for Life companion podcast. My name is LJ Harry. I am happily your host, and you are listening to the God's Word for Life podcast. Today's episode springs from a lesson dated April 24th, 2022, and it is entitled, God Knows the Way. We're still in the story of Joseph, although we're pretty much getting ready to wrap up the story of Joseph, and I love the story of Joseph. It's found in Genesis chapter 37 and following, but today's text is going to come from Genesis 41, 
verses 38 through 40. It's near the end of Joseph's story. Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, he asked the question of his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God hath showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. And Joseph probably bowed in his heart and said, Why, thank you for recognizing. Verse 40, Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. It sounds even more powerful coming in the King James Version, doesn't it? In Genesis 41, we approach the climax of Joseph's story. We have followed him all the way from being Jacob's favorite son all the way to being thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, thrown into Potiphar's house, being lied on, thrown into prison, being forgotten. And now we finally reach the place where Joseph is going to be vindicated, where the dream he received as a young man would finally begin to reach its fulfillment. Now, it's important to remind ourselves from the moment Joseph had the dream he had in Genesis 37 until this point in Genesis 41, his life has only gotten worse and worse. At the beginning of this chapter, Joseph was appreciably no better off than he was at the end of Genesis 37. So far, the dream was just that, just a dream. It was little more, it seemed, than a figment of his imagination. But Genesis 41 opens with a report of Pharaoh's two dreams. We assume these were in the same night. In the first dream, Pharaoh saw seven well-fed cattle come up out of the Nile River and feed along the banks. These were followed by seven more cattle, clearly starving, coming up out of the selfsame river and consuming. They ate up the well-fed cattle. After this dream, Pharaoh woke up, but there was no interpretation, no insight. He had no idea what the dream meant, only what the dream was. Pharaoh fell asleep a second time and dreamed again. This time he saw a stalk of corn with seven full ears. Suddenly, seven withered ears of corn appeared on the same stalk and consumed the seven full ears. When Pharaoh woke up, no interpretation, no insight, just a really, really strange dream. Even to the unpracticed reader, the dreams are clearly symbolic, clearly and deeply disturbing. The dreams are foreshadowing some evil outcome, but what? What's more important here is Pharaoh's role as a passive recipient of all this encrypted information. In Egypt's religion, Pharaoh was believed to be a demigod. He was believed to be divine. The embodiment of all of the God's will and their purpose on earth was in Pharaoh according to them. That's what they thought. And yet Pharaoh was troubled by these dreams and unable to interpret their meaning, which just simply showed that as a God, he really wasn't that powerful. Even Pharaoh's magicians and wise men who were handsomely paid to interpret dreams just like this one, this was their chance to be on the big stage and tell Pharaoh what all of this meant. The palace was a flurry of royal activity. All the while, Joseph languished in prison, completely unaware of the pandemonium that was engulfing the royal court. Perhaps the most pitiable moment of Joseph's life occurred when he asked the soon-to-be-freed butler, Hey, 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 would you think about me? When it's well with you, show kindness, I pray, and make mention of me to Pharaoh. Bring me out of this house. Bro, you hear it all the time, but it's true, at least in my story. I didn't do what they said I did. But as soon as the butler was a free man, he forgot all about Joseph. Every other part of Joseph's story, he didn't seem to ask anybody for help. In this one moment, he asks one man whose dream he interpreted 
and came to pass just like he interpreted. He asked him, hey, when you're free, please tell Pharaoh about me. And yet the butler forgot him for two more years. That's a long time to be forgotten. Even though it did not seem like it, God was still working for Joseph's good. At just the opportune moment when Pharaoh's panic reached a fevered pitch, the butler remembered that lowly Hebrew who had correctly interpreted his dream. With all speed, Pharaoh called for Joseph. It was probably just a matter of hours. Joseph's entire life had totally turned around. Pharaoh recognized his fate hung on Joseph's ability to properly interpret the dreams. This was a crucial moment for Pharaoh, even more crucial for Joseph. This was the big stage for Joseph, the moment, the defining moment that would determine the kind of leader Joseph would be if he would be any leader at all. And Joseph had an opportunity to capitalize on this ability, this gift God had given. He had been given a skill to be able to interpret dreams. He could have negotiated his release from prison and perhaps even the revenge of seeing his former master Potiphar imprisoned in his place for putting him there when he didn't belong there. Joseph could have aired all of his complaints and grievances to mighty Pharaoh and made himself the benefactor of Egyptians' brutal and harsh and swift justice. But in that crucial moment, instead of using that bargaining chip to his advantage, Joseph relinquished it with the humble acknowledgement that the gift of dreams is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer. Instead of using this moment to become the focal point of royal attention for Joseph to take the stage and show how wonderful and innocent he is, Joseph pointed to God, the God of his ancestors, as the source of the giver of this great gift. Joseph didn't choose the gilded path of self-aggrandizement. Joseph chose the path of humility and said, God will tell you what this means. Joseph, what a guy. Joseph would just humbly shake his head, point to the heavens and say, no, you got it wrong. What a God. Let me ask you this question. What do you think would have happened if Joseph tried to bargain with Pharaoh? i tell you what, Pharaoh, I'll tell you what your dream means. Take these shackles off of me. Take the shackles off my feet so I can dance. What do you think would have happened? And why do you think it was so important that Joseph was humble, not arrogant, in that very defining moment? First, Joseph recognized the dreams were paired. These were the same sequence of events. Both dreams meant the same thing. God just showed him in different ways. One fat cows that would make any Texan proud. The other one, fat stalks of corn that would make any Nebraska cornhusker proud. The fact God gave Pharaoh two dreams of the self-same event proved just how certain and imminent it was. The dreams concerned the next 14 years of harvest. For the first seven years, Egypt would experience rich harvest, incredibly rich harvest, bumper crops, unlike anything they had ever seen in Egypt. And yet this would be followed by seven years of famine so severe, so harsh, so painful. They would forget about the seven years of plenty. It's easy to miss the significance of the challenge that's presented here to Egyptians' religious convictions. These years of famine and plenty were both pictured as coming from the Nile River. The ancient Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. They relied on its apparently eternal cycle of flooding and receding just so that they could live. They knew the Nile would give them life, but they did not realize the Nile would also give them famine. It was unthinkable to Pharaoh and his court. 
But the God of the Hebrews revealed that this coming failure to Pharaoh, which was irrefutable evidence of God's superior power to the so-called God of the nations and even God of the Nile River. Joseph learned the crucial lesson of patience as he relied on God for some what some would say were 13 years. Unlike Pharaoh, when he was confronted with an unknown or unexpected future, Joseph didn't panic. He trusted God. Joseph strengthened his faith in God, his commitment to live faithfully before God. Joseph had learned that God would speak always in his own way and in his own time, and to be sure, God would always speak exactly when his words were needed. Joseph could stand confidently, not arrogantly, confidently before Pharaoh, knowing that the same God who interpreted the dream for the butler and the baker would give him this one as well. Joseph had complete confidence in the principle, later articulated by James in James chapter 1, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. The New Living Translation reads, He will not rebuke you for asking. <laughs> Aren't you glad about that? And it shall be given him, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. The challenge of our day is not that God no longer speaks, but we rarely listen. Often, the unexpected downturns of our lives are orchestrated by God to create some space for us to hear what he's already saying, for us to turn off all the other voices and the noise in our world so we can clearly hear God's voice. God, James said, will not withhold his wisdom from those who seek it, nor will he keep silent when we sincerely ask to hear God's voice. What are some of the most common reasons people don't hear from God? What are some of the most important changes we should make to better? hear from God. In a stunningly bold move, Joseph didn't stop offering Pharaoh the divinely revealed meaning of his dream. Joseph immediately moved to suggest a plan to prepare for this coming famine by storing up the excess from seven years of plenty to make sure they would live through seven years of famine. Joseph wasn't cocky. He was concerned. He was going to live through seven years of famine as well, but even though these people had imprisoned him unjustly, they were still people created in the image of God. And so Joseph wisely suggested a plan that would avert national disaster, even providing a path of prosperity for Egypt while the rest of the world was in the middle of a worldwide famine. As the rest of the story bears out, Joseph's plan succeeded so well, Egypt didn't only have grain enough to eat themselves, but they had grain enough to sell, for a tidy profit of course, to other nations, so other nations could still survive. Just like the story of Joseph's blessed success in Potiphar's house, once again, the tiny word all is used to indicate how successful Joseph's work was as Pharaoh's second in command. Genesis forty-one thirty-seven: the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. Verse 39, for as much as God hath showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise. Verse 40, according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. In verse 41, see, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. God had given Joseph more favor than Joseph knew what to do with. As Joseph would shortly learn with the arrival of his brothers, his family, his dream had become reality. The entire world, not just his family, would bow in respect before Joseph. But more importantly, this would be a respect born not out of fear of Joseph's power, but gratitude for Joseph's grace. Grace that showed up as wisdom that quite literally save the world. Think about your own life. How have certain events shaped your life? Can you think of a certain time in your life when you may not have understood what was happening, but that moment shaped 
who you are today, just like it did for Joseph. The story of Joseph's appearance before Pharaoh marked the climax of the story about the transformative power of God-given dreams. Every step, even every misstep, like the seductive trap set by Potiphar's wife or the butler's faulty memory. From our point of view, they're seen as crucial elements in the unfolding of God's intended purpose. It would serve us very well to ponder the distance between our perspective as a reader and Joseph's limited knowledge so we don't cheat the story out of its power. Joseph had no idea the end of the story except God gave him a dream. We are blessed to read chapter 41 and 42 and 43 all the way through chapter 50 where Joseph dies, a a powerful, aged man who was blessed to see his father again, his brothers again, even his own children. And yet Joseph did not have the benefit of being able to turn those pages. He lived it, and yet he trusted God. His story is a story of the psalmist's wisdom. The steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not utterly be cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young, and Joseph could testify, but now I'm old, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. God's faithfulness did not assure Joseph an easy life. Joseph's life was far from easy, zip codes from easy. But Joseph's final confession beautifully summarizes the reality of sovereign grace. When Joseph told his brothers, As for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. Genesis 50 verse 20. Grace didn't keep Joseph out of the pit or the prison, but it did get him through that. What encouragement for us today just to walk faithfully with the God who knows and who does all things well. One more question. We use the words faithfulness and faith a lot. How would you define faith and faithfulness? How would you define it for you? And how would you explain it to others? And we wrap this up. Now we stand on the mountain And we look back from the high point of Joseph's story where Joseph has his own room in the palace, his own throne in the palace. And it's easy for us to identify these defining moments in his life. The decision to share his dreams with his family, his decision not to fall for Potiphar's wife's seductions, his decision to continue serving with excellence even as a prisoner. All of those momentous, all of those defining moments, all of those change the direction of the story. All of those mattered more than Joseph could have possibly known. And the same is true in our lives. From where we live day to day, we're limited in what we know and what we see. We can't see the beautiful story God is writing, but we can let him write it. Don't wrestle the pen out of his hand. He's the author. He started writing your story. Let him finish your story. We can't always tell when we've made a trajectory-defining choice. Some decisions seem forced on us by the stress and strain of our all-too-busy lives. We find ourselves more often surviving than thriving. Our best efforts to be faithful aren't always met with commendation, sometimes with further complications. And like Joseph, we sit in pits and prisons. Others threw us in, hoping and dreaming of a better tomorrow. But in the middle of all of our sorrow and frustration and even despair, we have a precious promise that one day we will finally see, as Joseph did, the grand and glorious whole of our lives is part of God's divine plan. For Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. 
For now we see through a glass darkly, but then, all but then, we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I also am known. This hope, this dream, grants us the grace to continue forward to be faithful even in life's most trying trials. Joseph's greatest wisdom was his unfailing faithfulness. And for this reason, the writer of Hebrews, in his grand tour of the Bible's Hall of Faith, chose to save for last that wing showcasing the heroes who were tortured and mocked and scourged, imprisoned, stoned, martyred, ostracized, persecuted, and tormented, but who, despite or because of all of it, obtained a good report through faith. May their stories, along with Joseph's story, inspire us to greater faith and faithfulness. Oh, thank God for his goodness. Let's pray right now, no matter what you're going through and dealing with, God is writing your story if you will allow him. Leave the pen in his hands and let him finish the story he began writing. Lord Jesus, we love you and you are Lord. We worship you today. Although we may not understand your ways, your plan, your purpose, we do trust you. And I pray today, help every one of us, just as Joseph was faithful, help us to be faithful. Help us to look to you, help us to trust you, help us to believe you, that you will always do what is right. I pray today, Lord, please minister to all of those who are listening. Give us the grace, give us the strength to trust you and to leave the pen in your hand so you can continue writing our story much like you did Joseph's, so it all results in your glory. I pray this today and thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much, God's Word for Life listeners. Loyal listeners, thanks for coming back. First-time listeners, welcome aboard. We're happy to have you. Be sure to click subscribe and share, and you'll never miss an episode, and nobody else has to either. Also, visit us at PentecostalPublishing.com for some wonderful resources to help you in your relationship with God, your discipleship, and to help you as you disciple others in their relationship with God. Next week, we're going to wrap up the story of Joseph in the series called God is With Us. We're going to take a look at a lesson entitled Beauty from the Broken. If you have your God's Word for Life daily devotional guide, you'll find it on May 1st, 2022, Beauty from the Broken. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you next week and always look forward to learning and living out God's Word for Life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at PentecostalPublishing.com.